from Tokyo, Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, John Palfrey will join us to discuss digital natives. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000, and your world famous question of the week, coming right up here on the Grok's Science Show. Show. Well, the world around us is vastly different from just a decade ago. The rapid development of digital technologies often has some people struggling to keep up. But this is not a problem for those born into this digital era, for whom items such as iPods and social networking sites are not just welcome diversions, but perhaps absolute necessities. Well, who are these digital natives, and how must society adapt to this next generation? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor John Palfrey. Professor Palfrey is Professor of Law and a Vice Dean at Harvard Law School. He is a Faculty Director at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society and published extensively on Internet's relationship to intellectual property, governance, and democracy. His new book, Born Digital, Understanding the First Generation of Digital Natives, with co-author Uz Grazer, explores this issue for a general audience. Professor Palfrey, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok's Science Show. Thanks for having me on your great show. Well, certainly a pleasure, and I think this is certainly a very fascinating book, Understanding the Digital Natives, but I'm curious just exactly who are the digital natives? So we make an argument that there is not a generation but a population of young people who were born after about 1980, which is when social technologies kind of came on the scene, who have access to these technologies. Important to say that there are only about a billion out of the six billion people on the planet who have access to the Internet and related related tools. And lastly, who have the skills to use them. So this is a really important point. There are lots of young people who are very skilled in the use of technology, and there are likewise people who are falling on the other side of what scholars call the participation gap. So this is a relatively lucky group that uh, you know was born with these technologies and is using them in pretty sophisticated ways. I see. So, so what, are, what are some of the characteristics of the digital natives then? I think most people know them by their iPods, as you noted in the introduction, lots of people walking down the street with those earbuds in their ears. There are people who are spending a fair amount of time online and maybe a little bit less time on the television. They people who tend to multitask. They're obviously do, often doing more than one thing at a time that are in the online space using instant messaging, for instance. They tend to think fairly differently and learn fairly differently and read and get information quite differently. So it's the kind of change that affects lots of aspects of young people's lives, social life, how they relate to information, how they relate to institutions. So, uh, in a sense, digital technology is just really a very integral part of their lives. It is. That's exactly right. And in fact, when you talk to young people who are digital natives, they don't distinguish between the online parts of their life and the offline. I think that's one of the distinguishing features that those of us who are even just a bit older, we tend to think of, okay, that's something happening online and this is what's happening offline, but it's much more integrated in the minds of young people. You bring up in your book that the construction of a lot of the digital natives' identity is really wrapped up in their online experience. 
Yes, that's quite right, that uh, identity is something that's shaped not just by what you wear in the morning or who your friends are. It's uh, shaped also by the way you're portrayed online. So it might be your MySpace or your Facebook profile. It might be a blog that you're keeping. It might be an avatar in Second Life for the more advanced among them. It might be the character you use in uh, a m- massive multiplayer online game. So the way in which you shape your identity is very much converged one between the online and offline spaces. So why is this really sort of an important issue in terms of thinking about the digital natives and what it sort of means in terms of how society needs to adapt to generation? So I think there are a number of ways why it's important from a public policy uh, angle. You know, I think one is that there's something of a growing gap among parents and teachers from these young people. Not all parents and teachers, of course, uh, and not all young people, but where there's a difference in use of technology, we uh, talk to lots of young people and lots of their parents and teachers who basically weren't understanding one another. And I think one of the big losses that happens when that when that occurs is that, you know, parents and teachers can't convey the common sense that they uh, that they have their lives of things that parents uh, and teachers need to convey to young people as they're growing up, and we don't think this ought to be a barrier. That's the kind of thing where if a young people can guide you and show you the way into some of these environments, I think there's a lot that can be shared. You know, I think the specific issues that come up, clearly privacy is one that lots of people worry about, which is young people sharing more information about themselves to more people and putting it in more hands than ever before. I think safety is one that worries every single parent. You know, is my kid more likely to meet a predator online or, or to be bullied, for instance, online, the issues related to how young people learn, information overload, information quality, all these things are derived in some way from the way young people are using these technologies. And sometimes we're worrying more than we ought to. In other cases, we're worrying uh, perhaps even less. Uh, So maybe we should chat about some of these issues. What about uh, privacy uh, online? Do parents know about this and where, where are the laws at? I think parents do know about it, and it's actually something that I think we ought to worry a little more about than we do. It's the case that young people do often share a fair amount of information about themselves online. To be clear, many adults do too, so this is not limited only to young people. I worry about the young people who are born now and for whom they're going to live their entire life in a way that's recorded and digitized and shared, and we don't yet know what it's going to be like 30 years from now, 70 years from now, to have lived a life mediated totally by these technologies. And at least in the United States, the law doesn't do much to protect young people. So it's actually the case that you know, there aren't many protections under U.S. law for data that you give to a third party, somebody like Google or Microsoft or Yahoo or somebody who you trust as a, a service like Facebook or MySpace or your cell phone provider and so on. In some cases, that trust is well-placed. In other cases, you know, the, the rules could change pretty abruptly. And I, I don't think we've thought through quite yet the ramifications of lives totally led in this way. Uh, much has also been made of this issue of uh, safety online, the digital age. Sure. I mean, sa- safety is one of the issues where clearly there is some risk. So young people do sometimes meet young, meet older people who wish to do them harm, meet them online, then get lured into the offline space and bad things happen to them. No doubt that's a reality. Um, we're seeing a bigger uptick in terms of young people doing mean things to one another. Cyberbullying uh, is the sort of code word for it. I think one thing important to remember, though, without before we get too hysterical about it, is young people are not any less safe today than they were a decade ago. The data do not suggest that overall young people are more in danger than they were. Uh, You know, another thing is very often the greatest risks to kids, both in terms of sexual issues and otherwise, are from their peers, not necessarily from adult strangers. It does happen, again, but the the vast majority of the incidents that are harmful to kids happen, uh, you know, peer-to-peer. 
So one thing that we were trying to do with this book, Born Digital, is to bring the best of the data we can, best of the research to these questions, and then say, okay, if we know it's often kids doing it to one another, we know that they're doing real harm to one another, what are the kinds of things that we ought to be doing? I think often it comes back to education, it comes back to parents and teachers, and it comes back to social norms and mores and how people relate to one another, and often not to just pass a law, or often not to just you know use this, this one technology. It's possible that law and technology have a role to play, but, but education is a big part of it. So how educated then do you think are parents and teachers? By and large, not. not. And I think, you know, as I've interviewed parents and teachers and, and spoken to large school groups and so forth, I think there's a lot of room for parents and teachers to get much more in the game than they are. I don't think it's any lack of being interested. I don't think it's because parents and teachers aren't well-meaning. And then those of us who are expert in the field, I think, also have, have trouble with this when, with our roles as parents. But I think it's a crucial thing for parents and teachers to get much more involved in the safety issues that kids are facing online. Is there much effort being educating uh, the teachers? Some people are working very hard at it. There are a lot of nonprofit groups out there and a lot of government efforts that um, are focused on it. You know, I'd point to the online safety team at Microsoft, which has you know, devoted a lot of resources to, to public education. You know, big companies like Verizon spend a fair amount of time focusing on parents and teachers. There are you know, some school-based programs and so forth. Some states uh, have started to pass uh, requirements to have curricula, for instance, around it. So it's not that nothing is happening. It's just that it's happening at the margins, not as a as a large-scale push. Uh, You mentioned that most of the uh, safety issues really are peer-to-peer issues. Uh, Just how much has technology transformed the way in which things like cyberbullying happen? Yeah. You know, I think that the nature of bullying hasn't changed all that much, honestly, from the schoolyard version to the online version. So it's not the kind of issue where it's totally, totally different and all of a sudden the dynamics of what it means to treat one another have changed. So I think the the challenge, I think, for parents and teachers is all of a sudden you can see bullying happening, right? It happens now in a place where the public space is not a schoolyard that sort of happens off in the corner. It happens in a space online, and then it's recorded, so you can go back and see it later. So I think there's an extent to which it's kind of a little more in your face. You know, and the other aspect of it is if you don't feel like you can spend time or understand these environments, like MySpace, for instance, then you feel like you don't have an entree into helping fix the problem. But those parents who do make an effort, I think, you know, are, are making a huge difference through their involvement. Uh, So much has been made really about information overload. Uh, How much is it really affecting the next generation? Uh, I think it could be a big issue. I think it could be a big issue. The problem with information overload is it's not something that you can fix very easily through any law or any way in which the the state can kind of come in and make a mandate around it. It's the kind of thing that actually requires young people to have better analytical skills and digital you know, literacy skills. So this really goes, I think, straight to the role of teachers and you know, what are we teaching kids in terms of sorting credible from not credible information using the kinds of tools that are like DIG, for instance, or search engines or social bookmarking tools that are not probably natural for many parents and teachers as information tools, but which I think will be very useful over time in terms of sorting more information into buckets of credible and not credible. I see. Again, people have sort of said this information overload is uh, leading to sort of increased uh, attention deficit. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion of that. I, I, I think it's possible, but I don't think the data show it yet. I think there are lots of contributors to that presumption. Uh, it's no question that young people do pay attention to things in relatively short chunks. 
there is some data that suggests young people are less likely to read a book than older people or sort of engage in a sustained argument, if you will. Three to five minute videos tend to work pretty well. You can see that from the rise of YouTube, you know, in terms of uh, grasping young people's attention. So I think there are little snippets of information that might lead you to believe that. I, I don't believe it yet as a wholesale matter. Well, speaking of YouTube and online sharing of information, how much of an issue is pirating for the digital natives? So this is one of the things that I think is not a myth. I think young people do tend to get their music for free. I think a very small number of young people actually pay for it. Uh, and I think that is going to be a concern down the road. Uh, you know, the the good news that I found in our, our research was that if you talk to students a little bit longer about it, you actually engage in a conversation that's not a fear-mongering kind of conversation about it. You actually get to a sense of an understanding on their part that there are people on the other side of this issue, that there are human beings who are the artists who have these rights and so forth. They don't see it just as the man or the recording industry. I think that's a very important conceptual shift. The other thing that I think you get through honest conversation is that young people are often in the position of creator, right? They're often actually creating their own things. There's some really interesting creativity going on online, you know, remixing mashups and so forth. And, you know, that's the kind of situation in which young people say, oh my gosh, now I get why we have intellectual property rights of this sort. Sometimes you want to sell your works and you want to get paid for it. Sometimes you want to give it away and get famous, you know, but, but as you have that conversation a little bit longer, you get a sense of, you know, the balance that's inherent in the law. But that's a, it takes a long conversation to get to that point. The law is actually quite clear on it. In the United States, if you download music that you don't have a right to, you know, off of Casa or LimeWire or any of the peer-to-peer fostering services, you're breaking the law. Um, and the, the recording industry has sued now, I think, over 20,000 young people and old people alike, you know, for file sharing. They tend to sue the people who upload files to the file sharing network, so people who leave their ports open such that you, you're sharing it to other people. But the, the law isn't ambiguous on the score. I'm curious, what, is, what does all this mean really for, uh, you know, what do you call the digital immigrants in terms of trying to understand the next generation? Yeah, I'd, I'd quickly say that there are two categories. It's not just digital immigrants, it's also digital settlers. So there's some of us who were, you know, born a little before the 1980, but who really were online right as the, the whole thing started. And, you know, some of us are using technologies, I think, just as, in ways that are just as sophisticated, if not more so than young people. So I would hustle to say that there is that, that category, too. For digital immigrants, um, I think it's a little trickier. For people who have come to the technology somewhat later in life, maybe you start using email as part of your work, you know, in uh, in your mid-40s or something, and you're not quite as comfortable in this environment as other people are, you know, there's an adjustment period there. I don't think it's a terrible crisis. I think it's these technologies are pretty intuitive, and, you know, people at all ages are pretty smart. I think that there's more fear and uncertainty around it than, than there needs to be, to be honest. How do you think uh, society needs to adapt? Um, I'm not sure society adapting is exactly how I'd look at it. I think there are specific changes that I would you know, urge in, in the law. There are some specific changes that I think really need to play, take place in parenting and schools. Uh, you know, I think the, the fundamental question is uh, you know, whether or not are we, we're teaching these young people to do what's great about the online environment, the kind of creativity and innovation, entrepreneurship, and so forth, sometimes even civic activism, while also saying, okay, there are some things the young people are doing here that, that they, need, they need to stop doing. 
we haven't yet gotten to a national conversation about that or a, a really structured debate in schools or in, in the public. And I think the sort of call to arms in this book is really to say it will matter very much how these young people are using these technologies over time. And this is a point at which we can shape that to some extent. But if we let it go um, and we let some of these issues, uh, you know, just kind of trundle along, I think we're going to be both missing some opportunities and we're going to have growing problems over time. Do you think teachers really are trying to focus and uh, shape the use of this technology? Uh, I think some are. I, I know. I think many are are fearful, though. And I think you know one of the things we're trying to get at with Born Digital is to have a fairly straightforward explication of some of these issues and make them look not quite so unfamiliar as they have been. So I think you know there are some teachers who are doing amazing stuff with it. There are some teachers who don't want anything to do with it. But I think the vast majority, if encouraged and able to you know figure out what those next steps are, there's a ton that they can do. And I'm you know absolutely bullish about what they will do. Uh, I'm curious, how did you become interested in this whole issue? So, you know, I've been interested in, in technology. I teach it, uh, I teach internet law here at Harvard Law School, and that's a, a key starting point. But it's also because we've got a couple of small kids and really in discussions with my family about, you know, how do we want to raise these kids? What are the issues that they're going to be facing? How are they living life differently than we did as we grew up? And ultimately then as, as we talk to more parents and teachers, realizing that there's a lot of confusion and, and fear around it and hoping that we could look at the research and in a way do our, our, our homework in public uh, as parents and as teachers and to put as much information that's uh, sound and helpful out there into the public discourse. How would you rate yourself in terms of your technological savviness? Uh, I think it's pretty high, but I do it for a living. <laughs> All right. Well, it looks like we're running slightly out of time, but uh, I'm curious if maybe you have some final words regarding the whole issue of the digital natives. I think one thing that I don't want to get lost in the discussion of harmful issues, things like safety and privacy and so forth, is the amazing amount of creativity that some young people are doing in this environment. There's amazing digital cultural production in pockets of society, people making new music, new art forms, you know, people learning in new ways. And you know, one of the key things here is to focus on what are the great creative things going on and not to squelch that just as we try to keep kids safe in the way that we need to. Indeed, indeed. Well, the new book is called Born Digital, Understanding the First Generation of Digital Natives. Professor Palfrey, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me. And you were just listening to John Palfrey discussing the digital natives. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
right, we're ready to play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Gone Digital or Stuck in Analog. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 likes to know if you think they've gone digital or if they're still stuck in analog and maybe a little reason why. Uh, Professor Palfrey, ready to play the game? I am. This is dangerous, but I am. <laughs> okay, here we go. Person number one, gone digital or stuck in analog, pop star Britney Spears. Gee, I'm afraid probably stuck in analog. I haven't seen much on the digital side from her. <laughs> number two is the Fed chairman, Ben Bernanke. Hmm. Uh, again, I, I would probably put in the analog category, but it's because I haven't seen haven't seen him pop up all that much in the digital world. Maybe you could use a little digital in the current crisis here. Could be, could be. <laughs> all right, uh, number three is Oprah Winfrey. Hmm. You know, I, I would bet that Oprah's you know hipper to it. Uh, I, I think she's she's an adapter, so I'd probably put her in the going digital side anyway. She seems to have conquered all media. I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's sort of omnimedia. <laughs> uh, number four is the filmmaker Woody Allen. Ah, that's a good one. Um, you know, again, Woody Allen's not somebody I've seen a lot on online, but I, I could be wrong, but I'd, I'd, I'd lean toward the analog side. Okay. All right, and finally, number five, it's the outgoing president of the United States, George Bush. Oh, boy, definitely on the analog side of things. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, Professor Palfrey, I do want to thank you for sticking around playing the game, the Grokstron 5000, and, of course, talking about your new book, which, again, is Born Digital, Understanding the First Generation of Digital Natives. Thank you very much. Thanks again for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok's, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For the Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.